0: going to be diving back into the book of John tonight. How many of you have enjoyed the series in John so far? All two sermons, amen? Uh, John is just an amazing book. Like I said, uh, we're going to be going much slower than we did in the book of Acts, simply because uh, there's just so many more things that God's not going to let me skip over. God's not going to let me move past. Not that He did that in Acts, but um John's just an amazing book, and we're entitling the series through the book of John, God the Son. And tonight we're going to be back... Still yet in chapter 1, it's a very long chapter, 51 verses, but uh, we're going to be in chapter number 1, and our text verse is going to come in verse number 40. Verse number 40. John, again, is the only gospel that began with the pre-incarnate Christ. He began talking about Jesus way back in... The Beginning. That was the title of our first sermon, The Beginning. And then uh, last week we looked at His baptism. We looked at the baptism. We looked at Him coming to John the Baptist and springboarding the beginning of His public ministry. Uh, And we know right after He got baptized, He went out in the the wilderness to be tempted of the devil 40 days. And now it was time for Him to start putting the team together. It was time for Him to start calling and making disciples. And stand with me when you find it. Chapter number 1, verse number 40. Tonight... We're going to preach on this thought, the brothers. The brothers. Chapter number one, verse number 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Church, look back at verse 42. Read those first six words again there with me. And he brought him to Jesus. One more time. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Again tonight we're going to preach on this thought. The brothers, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the Book of John. Thank you that you came down to this earth and you came down and uh, and dwelt a human body and took the form of a man, God, and were a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. But God, while you could have done it all by yourself, you could have done it all alone. Thank God, you made disciples and you taught us how to make disciples and you taught us how to develop the discipleship mentality here in this in these verses. God, I pray and I ask this more this evening that you bless me, that you fill me. God, get me out of your way. Speak to your people through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This week's introduction is going to be more of a historical one. Uh, we won't be <coughs> uh, looking back into the earlier part of the chapters or anything like that, but by introduction this uh, this evening, I'd like to do a little bit more uh, of a historical introduction of the time and the context and the culture of which these two brothers, uh, <coughs> Andrew and Peter, uh, and again, there was another disciple mentioned here. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute, but these men, where they lived and where they dwelt and the society around them, in a little bit what it looked like. First thing I want you to understand about the culture and the context that they were living in is that there was very, very fragile peace, all right? Rome had just came out of a vicious civil war over who would be the next emperor after Julius Caesar, uh, Caesar was assassinated. Everybody knows the story. You probably had to go through it in high school or middle school of Julius Caesar, and you see uh, the man be betrayed by his own uh Friend Brutus and E2 Brute, and we've been through those stories of Julius Caesar. Well, those were based on historical events. Well, after the fall of Julius Caesar, we know that Rome fell into turmoil and there was a literal civil war that raged over who would uh, take the throne, who would be the next emperor, and we know that. one side won, but there was still an aura, an era of very fragile peace that uh, the Romans had had rule and reign over Judea and over Jerusalem there, and uh, they had been fussing. They had been fighting. There was literally battles taking place from this party versus that party, and there was uh, it had just wrapped up and it had just finished, but you can always feel that tension after there's been a fight, after there's been an altercation, it seems for the moments after and sometimes for many days, many weeks after, there's just that uh, feeling of tension that it could break back out again or that maybe let's see how long this peace is going to last. So they had just come through that civil war and that aura of fragile peace was in the air but not only was there fragile peace but there were frail Politicians. The Roman king Herod uh, had dominion over, we've all heard the name Herod, it talked about in the Gospels, especially in Matthew's story, where uh, he was a very, very evil and wicked man, but he was the politician. He was the king that was given charge over Judea and over the Jews and making sure that they stayed in line under the Roman Empire. And it was, <clears throat> it was pretty uh, impressive at how they manipulated these societies. We're going to get there a little bit more in a minute. But uh, it was him and then, you know, the governor Pontius Pilate. They were uh, literally supportive of the highest bidder, uh, corrupt at every level. And Herod was willing and did kill. Uh, he was willing to. And he did kill thousands of the firstborn babies. How do you remember when he was looking for Jesus? And he knew that Jesus had been born somewhere around uh, Bethlehem. And he knew in that general area. And he gave the decree. And he gave the order to slaughter the first or all these old uh, boys between a certain age. He did that without even thinking a second thought. Why? Because there was a one little inkling of a threat to his power and uh, bless God, we know that we've got some corrupt politicians on the scene today, but nobody is giving orders saying to slaughter all the firstborn because they think somebody uh, is giving uh, is giving this sort of power or this prophecy is being filled. We had a politician in Herod that was simply just terrible, simply just uh, futile in every way that... The Jews that were under him never knew what he was going to do next. They never knew what was going to come down the line, and our nation may get to that point. And in some ways, it already is. But uh, our nation may get to the point where we have no trust and no faith in our leadership. We have no trust in our in our in our faith in our frail politicians. But bless God, hopefully the church is already above that. The church is already looking past that, and the church is understanding and willing to acknowledge that their king is Jesus. That their king is sitting on the throne. That they're not worshiping these politicians. They're not worshiping the Herods and the Pilots of this life, but they're looking and they're being rewarded from the king in heaven. But there was frail politicians in this day. There was nobody to really put their trust in. Even though uh, Judea was under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire, there was really no uh, consistency with their leadership. uh, And that just led to foolish propaganda. The Jewish hierarchy uh, were literally at war Within themselves. So if you step down the hierarchy ladder from the Roman Empire to Herod to Pilate, then you get back down to the Jewish hierarchy and you had the Pharisees and then you had the Sadducees, and even they were fighting amongst each other. They couldn't agree on whether there was a resurrection or whether there wasn't a resurrection. They couldn't agree on should you fulfill these parts of the law or these parts of the law? Should you uh, execute this or should you execute that? Should you? pay this much to get your sins forgiven? Should you bring this many lambs, this many sacrifices, this many this? They were fussing and fighting at every level, even within the Jewry, and would do or say anything to gain influence with Rome. Or the Jewish people. So here you have the religious leaders of the day, the ones that are supposed to be spiritual, the ones that are supposed to be in their Bibles, in the laws and the books of Moses, in the Torah, <clears throat> in those first five books of the Bible, and they're supposed to be the ones preaching to the Jews and teaching the Jews. And even though they're under Roman rule, they're supposed to be the ones uh, instructing and guiding God's people through this captivity, through this time. However, that's not what we find. We find a group of men that were literally available to the highest bidder. They were both trying. You had the Pharisees. They wanted to be the Romans' favorite. And the Sadducees, they wanted to be the Romans' favorite. And they would both do things and say things and manipulate things to try to gain favor in the eyes of the Jewish people or gain favor in the eyes of Rome. And we see the same thing in the world we're walking around in today where we have groups and leaders and and big names and big churches that are simply saying the things that the government wants them to say, saying the things that the leaders of this day want them to say, saying the things that even their crowds, their multitudes, their thousands and thousands, thousands of people in their congregations saying the things that they want to hear simply to keep prominence and it's simply foolish propaganda. It's simply departed from the Word of God. And I just wanted to set the setting and get you to understand exactly where these men were living. They couldn't put their faith and their trust in their governments, the Roman Empire. They couldn't put their faith and their trust in uh, their religious leaders, the Sadducees or Pharisees. They're even looking at them and they're fussing and fighting. Is it starting to sound familiar? Is it starting to hit home a little bit that there was nowhere that they could look where there just wasn't sin in the camp? Finally, there was financial peril. As I said, uh, Brother Dan and I, and again, I cannot stress enough how much of a blessing... Brother Dan Mao has been to this preacher right here. Again, uh, I will say it and I will say it again. He is willing to invest in me and to pour time into me and to teach me things and to guide me on things and simply to put up with my fishing trips and put up with the things that I'd like to go do and entertain all my hobbies simply so he can teach me more. Um, My back has been hurting more and more from all the books I'm having to carry around. Every time I see him, he's handing me more books. But uh, not to just puff up Brother Dan tonight, but I cannot stress enough how much he's helped me. But this morning, as I mentioned, it seems like His messages are getting and throwing the jabs and the right crosses and then my messages are being woven together by the Holy Spirit. He said this and He brought up the tax collectors of the day and how evil and corrupt right there where these disciples would be living, where Jesus was going to call His team out of, there was financial peril. The Roman taxism, as as He was saying this morning, was so corrupt and so off that literally no one had a chance. And if you looked at it uh, from the surface level, it would say, okay... Uh, They taxed the Jewish people 1% for a temple tax because Herod built him that temple there in Jerusalem. And he said, okay, I built you this temple, so I'm going to tax every Jewish citizen 1% of their income to help pay for that temple. Now, how many people in here would say, okay, well... uh, The government built us a church and they want to tax us 1% to help pay for that church. A lot of us might go, that's not so bad. I mean, that's a a good give and take there. But then (coughs) Herod would also imply uh, an income tax and a property tax and a sales tax and a trading tax and a crop tax and a produce tax. And all these other taxes would begin to just pile on top of each other. And you're going, okay, well, I mean, it is taxes. And, you know, if there's one thing for certain, it's death and taxes. Amen. And that, that doesn't look that bad. Well, then enter the tax collector. You see, these Jews, these people were not just subject unto what the government said their taxes were, but there were individual tax collectors where their only job was to wake up every day and go collect the taxes that were due to the Roman Empire. Now, you may think in today's society or in modern vernacular, they say, okay, well, their job is to collect taxes, so I'm sure Rome is writing them a monthly check paying them to go collect taxes. That must be how they make their money. That is not how they made their money. The way a tax collector made money was to go to your door and say, the Roman tax for you today is 75% of this amount. And you say, excuse me, sir, it's actually only 60%. And they go, I'm sorry, you must not have heard me. It's 75% and that's what you're going to pay or you're going to go to jail today. And they would have to fork over the money. So then that tax collector just made 15% of that income. He would simply, only way they made money was taking and stealing from the Jewish people. So here you have a group of men, a group of women, the people that Jesus was going out to. I want you to see it here. I want you to understand the group that Jesus was about to go out and call the 12, call his team, call his disciples, call his preacher boys, call his apostles, call the ones that would be the foundational pieces of the local church. He was going to a group of people that were not used to peace. They were, they had been witnessing civil war and turmoil. They had no faith in their leadership. They didn't know where to turn for guidance. They didn't know who was in charge on any given day of the week. They had no spiritual leadership. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were completely on their own heads fighting with one another. And they had no financial uh, stability about them. They had nothing. All their money was being gouged of them of taxes and taxes and more taxes. So you can imagine the desperation and the hearts of those people. They did not know what to do next. Enter Jesus Christ. Enter the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. We know he had just been baptized of John the Baptist. And we're going to pick up reading in verse number 35 as he puts the team together. Verse number 35. Again, the next day, the next day after, John stood, John the Baptist stood, and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. This evening' message is entitled The Brothers because we're going to look at the disciples themselves and exactly how they became the disciples. Because I would stress tonight that there's a big difference between a believer in Jesus Christ and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is very interested in making and <coughs> remaking and reproducing disciples because a disciple will be the one to go out and make more disciples. A disciple will be the one to go and tell and to go and witness and go and teach. So tonight, disciples are going to do some things. And we're going to see them take place in our passage. Number one, disciples examine his walk. Look again at verse 35. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. So now these are two of John the Baptist's disciples. All right. Who are they? Well, we find out later in the text. One of them is Andrew. All right. And we find out through context and through further study that the other one is most likely John, the apostle, the very writer of this gospel. Why? Because he never names himself. He never gives himself a name in scripture and you won't find him naming this other disciple. How else? We also know that back uh, in 34, he said, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. We know that John was there when Jesus was baptized, that he was following and at least observing the ministry of John the Baptist. So on verse 35, when we see these two disciples at the end of verse 35, we can conclude and deduce one by literal text that one is Andrew and by context and clues the other one is John. So we have Andrew and John in verse 36, and looking upon Jesus, this is still referring to John the Baptist, as he walked, he saith, behold the Lamb of God. And looking upon Jesus. Number one, disciples examine His walk. Looking upon Jesus, look at those next three words, as He walked. A disciple observes and examines closely the walk of Jesus Christ. Christ, As they saw Him be baptized, and it says this is the next day, they begin to observe Him again, and this time just a little bit more keen. This time as a little bit more close. See, the first time, John, John the Baptist was the only one that saw Him apart. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. But this time, there were two men standing next to John that also saw Him, that also knew who He was, that also examined His walk. And today, if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to be the ones that can call ourselves disciples of the King, ones that serve, ones that actively participate in producing souls for the kingdom by witnessing and sowing the seed of the gospel, if we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, in a day when we need disciples of Jesus Christ more than ever, I will tell you this, we don't need more statistics on a board. As as I look at all this election mess, it says, wide evangelicals and Catholics and title and title and title, and they, they put the, uh, the umbrella of Christianity and all these little names and all these. We don't need any of those. We don't need numbers on a chart. We need more disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus followers. Not denominational terms or this, that, or the other. We need more disciples. And they watched His walk and they began to emulate His walk, walking in His Word. Walking in His Word. I cannot stress enough. I cannot stress enough how scripturally... Crippled, the church by and large is today. Many people can explain to a non-believer what the Bible says about something. You know why? Because they don't know what the Bible says about something. Brother Frank is gracefully teaching a Sunday school series on the glory of growing old and aging. And we are so so blessed to have a church full of the elder generation, full of the elder generation that has witnessed the power and presence of God, that has been through some things, that has been exposed to some things, that has done years and years and lifetimes for some of these younger ones of Bible study. But what good is it to possess all that knowledge, to possess all that wisdom, to possess all that experience if we're not willing to pass it to the next generation? Because we have a group of people my age, I would say, roughly, and younger, that have no idea what their Bible says. That their parents maybe gave them a Bible when they left the house. Their parents maybe, if they were lucky, may have told them where they could buy a Bible somewhere if they ever wanted to read one. But many of them don't even own a Bible, let alone know what it says. What if they had a group of believers and instead of when encountered and instead of when walked up to and said, well, what do you think about this social issue? And what do you think about this social issue? and What do you think about cigarettes? Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? What do you think about all these social issues? And rather than a Christian going back into the world's mentality and saying, well, I read this and I, and I saw this and I heard about so and so, what if we were the simple reply, well, this is what the Bible says about it. Well, this is what the Word of God says about it. I love it when a non-believer says, well, what's your opinion on fill in the blank here? And I, my, my response is always consistent. is I don't get to have an opinion on that. I'm not God. But God does have an opinion on that. And this is what he says about it. Now, you can't be mad at me about God's opinion. He wrote it in a book that's 6,000 roughly years old on average. So if you're going to get mad at somebody, get mad at him. Not me. You see, but we've liked to take the place and say, well, bless God, this is what I think about it. And bless God, I'm going to tell you what my daddy told me or my grandpa told me. Now, there ain't nothing wrong with having a wise grandfather or a wise father, but we've got a heavenly father that's ten times as wise as anybody walking around down here. We've got the King of kings and the Lord of lords that gave us the basic instructions before leaving earth, the B-I-B-L-E. Are we walking in his word as his disciples? Do we know what it says? We'll never explain to people what it says if we don't read it ourselves. Walking in His Word. Walking in His wisdom. On Wednesday nights, we've begun a series in Romans with the teenagers. In the series and the, the phrase I'm having them to repeat is, When in Rome, what would Jesus do? When John and Andrew saw Jesus walking... They were watching him walk, but they saw somebody that wasn't just good with speaking or good with words. They saw somebody who was wise. Do we walk in Christ's wisdom? Well, what's that look like? Literally, what you learned when you were in children's church many years ago. What would Jesus do in this situation? What, was, what would Jesus do in this situation? Preacher, are you really getting up on a Sunday night with all these people that came to hear a great expository message on the Word of God? You're going to tell them to do what would Jesus do? Yes, I am. Because that's what they did. They, they saw His walk. And they saw Him walking in wisdom. It's the simple, practical application. If Christ literally indwells you, which we believe He does, upon the day of salvation, Christ literally comes to live on the inside of your heart and indwells you through His Holy Spirit. If He's literally living inside of you, there shouldn't be an, a very big disconnect between what He would do and what you would do. Should there? If He lives in here, what He would do in a given situation shouldn't be too hard to figure out from what you would do. Because He's here. We're here. How have we fell so far to where the thing He's telling us to do here or telling us not to do here is the last thing we think to do up here? How have we fallen so far? Let me tell you why. Because there's a whole, whole lot the devil has given us to block that communication. I would suggest every parent of a teenager, every parent of a child, and then any Christian believer. How many of you got Netflix or have access to Netflix? Okay, come on now, somebody help me. Go on Netflix, hit the search bar, and type in The Social Dilemma. The Social Dilemma. And it's simply a, a scientific documentary. That explains the millions upon millions upon millions upon billions of dollars that are invested each day of the week through the stock market into filling our heads with the things that we think we want to hear and drawing our attention away from anything that's true. They have scientifically proven that I can pull my smartphone out or I can go sit down at my computer and I can click... And I can type into the search bar, climate change. And based on my geographic location, it'll automatically finish the sentence, is a hoax. Or, is the greatest threat to humanity. They've proven that. That is a mathematical fact. And the companies admit to that because that makes them more money. You're going to spend more time on the computer if you're reading something that you agree with. You're going to spend more time scrolling on Facebook if you're seeing things that you enjoy seeing. You're going to spend more time on Facebook if you're seeing things that make you upset, make you angry. And you're going to investigate those things and you're going to and then you're going to wait for 15 seconds while it plays an advertisement, aren't you? And you're going to wait for 20 seconds. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. Good. Spread the word. Stay off of it. All right. Don't do anything just because I do it. But I watch that. And I began to study it for myself and didn't just take the documentary's word for it and begin to look into the things. Simultaneously, this election came down and I saw one news station saying this, one news station saying that, and I deleted all of it. Why? Because I'm interested in hearing what he has to say. And when he's living inside of me, but I'm pumping in all the garbage from Facebook and I'm pumping in all the garbage from Twitter and I'm pumping in all the garbage from Google. Google, it gets really, really hard to listen and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God. And the church wonders why. We go through a whole week and we can't hear them. We heard about you-know-who and you-know-who and you-know-who. We heard about all them. We didn't hear nothing from the King of kings, the Lord of lords, because we were too busy listening to everybody else. They walked in His wisdom. Disciples walk in His wisdom. They do what He would do. They say what they would say. And I would challenge you. Tune it out. Am I saying put your head in the sand? Heavens, No. We got the end of the book. You can't put your head in the sand if you know the end of the story. But what should we be doing? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Not go ye and post the post that gets the most likes on Facebook. Not go ye into all the world and share the feed that... uh, Get you the most popularity or makes your video go viral or young people or makes your post get so many likes or so many this and so many that. It is hogwash the desire of God for His local New Testament church, for His disciples is still to go and make more disciples, is still to go and evangelize. And whatever the media is going to say and whatever the news outlets are going to say, they're going to say it. Why? Because the devil is trying his hardest to distract the very people that could do something about it. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus have all that on his phone? No. He'd be too busy to even own a phone. Think about it. Walking in his worship. A believer goes to church, a disciple goes to worship. Think about that. Just chew on that. A believer goes to church. A disciple goes to worship. Because a disciple comes in like I come in. And I'm not boasting. By the time I get here on Sunday, I'm wore out. I'm tired. I'm tired of being the only one. In my workplace, I feel like that doesn't do this or do that or act this way. I'm tired of being the only one that feels like he's... Because the devil puts that in your head. You're the only one doing this. You're the only one. And I come in amazing grace fills me right up doesn't it fills you right up you see because a believer they go to church they come they check the box they believe in Jesus they believe the gospel they're saved they're going to heaven they're not interested in being disciples they're not interested in being a true disciple so they, they come to church and that's what they do they come to church but a believer worships at church Disciples examine his walk. Verse 37, disciples emulate his work. Look at verse 37. And the two disciples heard him speak. Look at this. And they followed Jesus. You want to know how to be a disciple? Follow Jesus. And they followed. I love the simplicity John uses. And they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them. Did it say Jesus just kept on walking and never acknowledged their existence? Did it say Jesus was like, oh, there's two guys following me around. They're kind of creepy. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. No. As soon as Jesus, don't miss this. As soon as Jesus got a hold of the fact that there was a heart, two hearts desiring to follow him, it got his attention. It got his attention. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, what seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? Okay. First of all, they were emulating His work by following His voice. And the, when the disciple, and two disciples heard Him speak, they followed Him. They were following Him simply because they heard His voice. You catch that? They heard His voice and they followed Him. How many you remember that day that voice came to you and said, Come. Come. They heard His voice and they followed Him. Next, they followed His vision. What was the question they asked Him? What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? You know what they asked him? Where are you going? I want to come to. Where are you going? I want to come to. Where do you live? Where do you stay? Jesus, where do you spend your time? Who do you spend time with? Who do you go talk to? Who do you go be around? Who do you socialize with? Jesus, there's something different about you. Jesus, you're the biggest thing in my life I ever found. Where are you going? I want to come to. Where dwellest thou? Following his vision. Sometimes we can be guilty of being a believer and being a Christian, but not walking in the same direction Jesus is walking. And a lot of times we think just because we're not walking in the opposite direction, we're okay. But many times we're not going the same direction he's going because we're not moving. We're firmly Planted by the river, not to be moved by the will of God for our lives. We're not going anywhere, let alone following Jesus. That road could get dangerous. That road could get hard. That road could cause me to lose a little bit of prowess, lose a little bit of political power, lose a little bit of prosperity, You lose a little bit of popularity. I am afraid. I'm not going anywhere. Not these two, not these disciples. They said, where are you going? We're coming to. Some of us said they didn't even give Jesus a choice in the matter. What's your address? I'm on my way. Where are you going, Jesus? Where are you going? I want to be the disciple going the same direction as Jesus. I want to be interested in going the same direction Jesus is going. Again, reel it all back. What direction is Jesus going? We've talked about it this morning. The world's going down. Jesus is going up. He's coming back to get us and take us up. So if we're not living each and every day like we're going up, like we're getting out of here not that we're saying goodbye to a lost and dying world that we care nothing about but that we're living that the people around us are individual souls that are destined for heaven or destined for hell and we start walking and teaching and talking like Jesus would caring about each and every one each and every business owner each and every employee that we come into contact with each and every neighbor each and every friend do we care where they're going if we're going the same direction as Jesus, we'll care where they're going. Following his vision and following his vicinity. Look at verse 39. In his vicinity, he saith unto them, come and see. You want to know where I dwell? Come and see. Same thing he's saying today. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. They abode with him. How many you got that relative when it comes around Thanksgiving? You got a couch and it has three spots there's three people on it but there's a little glimmer of hope of a chair left right between you and the person and you got your plate and your diet coke and your dessert thing back here and here he comes it's that uncle or that aunt that sees that little glimmer left of the couch and that's where they want to sit really there That's how close they wanted to be to Jesus that day. Abode with him. Let me come to your house. Where do you live? I live here. Come and see. Jesus probably sat on whatever he had to sit on. Doesn't give us much details about his house. You know why? Because, silly man, you and me, we built all our houses to look just like his, wouldn't we? That wasn't what was important. He was the tabernacle. He was the one we were supposed to be emulating. So he gave us no details about his house. But what he did tell us was that these two disciples stayed where he was. Until one moment. Disciples examine his walk. Disciples emulate his work. Lastly, disciples evangelize his world. Look at verse 40. Here they are sitting there abode with him that day for it was about the 10th hour in verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. There was a moment where a light bulb turned on for Andrew where he said, this this thing is not just for me. I've got a brother that needs to know what I've found. That was a personal priority. Andrew, realizing who he had found, felt a personal burden for his own brother. I've experienced this. I grew up in a home where my great-grandfather was a preacher and my sister and my little brother both made professions of faith as I did at a young age. So I was in a blessed home where I grew up knowing everyone in my home was saved by their profession, by their faith. But we were gathered out there one Wednesday night many years ago. It was one of the first Wednesday nights I came. We were gathered in the fellowship hall and Harold Nicholas stood up and Asked for prayer for Miss Pauline because she wasn't saved. Remember how he'd do that to her? Preacher and preacher's wife. And he'd stand up and say, pray for my wife. She's not saved. They had been in ministry together for 50 years. But he thought that was the funniest thing. He was slipping with Alzheimer's. And the next prayer request came up. And our dear deacon, Tony Holland, stood up and he said, pray for my son, Mason. Mason. And I can't remember, Mason may have been six or seven years old at the time, maybe a little older. I can't remember. And my ears. Because I grew up with that family. I grew up with Mason. Mason was just like my little brother. And I turned and he said, he's not saved. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And he said, Mason thinks in a very black and white fashion. He, it's hard for him to grasp things that are supernatural. It's hard for him to grasp... And I heard nothing else what Tony said because what was going through my ears was that is unacceptable. My brother's not going to hell. That is unacceptable. There's no way I can sit in this chair. There's no way I can go to work tomorrow. There's no way I can do another thing until I know he's heard the gospel of Jesus and he's been able to understand it and he's been able to give the opportunity to to say yes to it. I felt what Andrew felt here to say, it is unacceptable for me to find what I have found, for me to discover what I have discovered and tell nobody. But I got a brother over here that I need to go tell. He's out there fishing right now. He's out there throwing his nets out and I got to go tell him I the biggest one of all I found the biggest one of all I've encountered the Messiah the Christ so I took Mason out the next day and and I didn't sleep I didn't eat I, I, I didn't think about anything else because that's my little brother there's no way I'm letting him not be saved I'm a very young man I know it's not up to me to save him but I called our youth pastor at the time Josh Berkey and I said hey Josh you got them door hangers for the youth and he said yes and now in retrospect I know how shocked he was I said, can I have about 50 of them? I want to go hang them on doors for you. And he, (laughs) what? Now I know why he was so surprised. So I took Mason, got in my car, and we went in his neighborhood and started hanging door hangers. He's in the youth group. Hanging these door hangers on the doors. And at every house, I started to tell him, why are we doing this? Because we want people to come to church. He's a very black and white thinker. I wish... I could be as socially brave and courageous as that young man. Because he doesn't give a rip what you think about what's about to come out of his mouth. Why are we doing this? Because we want him to come to church. Okay, well, why do we want him to come to church? Because we want him to hear about Jesus. Okay, well, why is that important, Mason? And I begin to over and over and over and go through the story and say, because if they die and they don't know Jesus, where are they going? And he'd say, hell, hell. And I begin over and over. All right, so Mason, we're at this four-way intersection. If we walked out and you got hit by a car and you died, where would you go? And he goes, heaven. Why? I don't know. So we get to the next four-way. So if a bus hits you at this one, Mason, what would happen? Where would you go? Hell. Why? I don't know. And it would have been easy for me to get frustrated. But then I had to remember what the Bible says here in verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. And he brought him to Jesus. So I was irritated in my own ability. I couldn't make Mason understand the God. I couldn't. I, and I had such a burden. I had such a fervency. All I wanted him to do was say yes. But then I remembered these, this text and these words that Andrew just simply got his brother and he ushered him to the presence of God and he left them there. So as we got done, as I dropped Mason off, I said, Mason, I want to pray for you. And I prayed and I begged God to make himself real to Mason. And I waved by and I let him go in his house. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That evening, 10.30 at night or so, I get a phone call. It says, Mama and Daddy, saying all by himself in his little room. The Holy Spirit went down his little hallway, went into his little heart, made it just as clear as day to him. He come running out of the room and said, Mama and Daddy, I need to get saved. And he had a Mama and Daddy to leave him, lead him to the Lord right there in the living room. Why? wasn't me it was him but the Lord really spoke to my heart on this there are people that will never witness outside their home because they've not been bold enough to witness inside their home I was blessed and had a family that was all made professions of faith at a young age but it was that moment where I saw God do it I said, God, I can do this. I can plant the seed. We've all had, as Christians, we've all had that moment. It worked. We've all had that moment. It works. It works. It works. It works. But first it had to hit me with my little brother. And now many years later, when it came time, we don't have anybody to run the soundboard. I'll do it. When it came time, his church was going through a very hard time, struggling many months ago. He said, I, I, I'm going to Anchor Hope. That's my church. He stood up. Why? Because this is where he met God. This is where he heard. Disciples evangelize his world through a personal priority, a passionate plea. Look at verse 41. Find us his own brother and saith unto him, we found the Messiah. Peter, we found what we've been looking for, brother. Ah, that King Herod, he's doing this and ah, those Pharisees and Sadducees, they can't get, no, 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 Peter, hush, it ain't anything in Washington, it ain't anything in Rome, it ain't anything that's going on down in the religious Pharisaical household, it ain't anything that the Pharisees or Sadducees are doing, it's the Messiah, it's Jesus, it's the Son of God, we found Him, come on! and a practical partner. Look at verse 42 and its completion. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Here's what I want us to take away. I know I'm long-winded, two minutes too long. But here's what I want us to take away tonight. All the ministry and the works and the power of and the ramifications throughout human history that we got from Peter, that we got from the life and the ministry of the apostle Peter, Peter that walked on the water, Peter that preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter that uh, began to pastor that first church there in Jerusalem and began to call out and begin to do miracles and begin to uh, raise lame men to walk. And he said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ and Lazarus, rise up and walk. That Peter may have never found Jesus if it wasn't for an Andrew that was just willing to say there's somebody I know that needs to meet you Jesus so I want to close with this question are you I believe we'd probably be all believers tonight I hope so but if you don't even know who Jesus is because you've never met him you've never repented of your sins and trusted him tonight I pray that tonight would be the night but out here, I also believe that there's probably a large group of believers and there's a large group of disciples. And individually, we need to decide what we're going to be. Do we just believe and accept that that's good enough and that's all we're ever going to do? Or are we going to be disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these brothers, Andrew and Peter. God, thank you for the courage of Andrew to go and to witness to his Brother and bring him back to Jesus. God thank you for the faithfulness of John and Andrew to just simply follow Jesus on faith, to follow Jesus based on the way He was walking, based on the what He was saying. God, I pray that you help us to see that the answer of our dark and dying day is you. As we look back in the history of our country, as all the times we've ever been divided, of all the times we've ever not known where to turn, of all World War I, World War II, the Civil War, God, we can look back at all about history and we can find without a shadow of a doubt that each and every time our nation was healed and it was brought back together, it was done so by a recognition and a worship of you. God, I pray that you help the people in this room see that they could be the very disciples that help usher in that revival, that help usher in that church that is a light in this community. God, I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see everybody back Wednesday at 645 for prayer meeting. Be dismissed.